welcome to this edition of the JNP podcast. My name is Colin Mahoney and I'm the journal's podcast editor. Joining me today is Professor Martin Turner, lead author of the recently published Consensus Diagnostic Criteria on Primary Lateral Sclerosis, published in April's edition of the JNP. Professor Turner is Professor of Clinical Neurology and Neuroscience at the University of Oxford and a consultant neurologist at the John Radcliffe Hospital. He leads the multidisciplinary research team at the Oxford Motor Neuron Disease Research Centre and is a recognised global leader in biomarker development in the motor neurodegeneration. So a very warm welcome to you, Professor Turner, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for the invite. Firstly, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about primary lateral sclerosis, where it fits in within the spectrum of motor neuron disease, and why it's so important to implement new diagnostic criteria for it? Yes, um, primary lateral sclerosis has been known about since just around the the turn of the 20th century. It was well recognised in texts. Uh, If we think about the human motor system, we can divide that circuit into broadly two two components, really. The central or upper motor neuron component connecting motor cortex down through the uh, the brain stem and spinal cord and then the peripheral lower motor neurons innervating the muscle and in ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, by far the most common form of what we in the UK tend to call motor neuron disease, we're going to see really a generalized involvement of both those central and peripheral circuits. We're going to recognize the muscle wasting uh, often with fasciculation and a fairly rapidly progressive course with a median survival around three years from the start of symptoms. It was well recognised really that there were a group of patients and they form really around about 3% of cases where there's an extremely pure involvement of just those central motor circuits, the upper motor neuron. And so patients have a much more insidious onset of often a sense of stiffness, difficulty with gait, And the clinical signs on examination are really very much hyperreflexia, spasticity, and none of the more peripheral uh, lower motor neuron signs that we see. Now, those cases take a long time to develop and uh, emerge over a period of years and not months. And then the, the course of those cases is characteristically very slow and often uh, into a second or even a third decade from the onset of symptoms. So you've come up with these um, new core um, criteria. Can you tell us a little bit about the core clinical principles and the levels of diagnostic certainty uh, used to diagnose PLS and why these were selected by the expert working group? Well, the difficulty here has been that that we know from uh, retrospective studies that people uh, who are living with PLS will tell you that it's taken several years to get a diagnosis. Now, at the moment, we don't have good disease modifying therapies. We have some limited symptomatic therapies, but everyone would agree that it'd be better to get these things in earlier. Everything we're learning about neurodegeneration suggests the process has been going on for many years before symptoms emerge. So we want to minimize people's disability and making that diagnosis sooner will will allow that when the drugs come through. Now, the, the core principle in PLS is has this person that we're we're examining, have they got a progressive upper motor neuron syndrome um, with all the sort of features that we we, we look for in a more common diagnosis of ALS, such as relentless progression and lack of sensory involvement, but really just limited signs to the upper motor neuron. The difficulty is that we know that some of those people will go on to develop ALS. 
And that's a very, very difficult uh, overlap area of what we call upper motor neuron predominant forms of ALS, where a few years down the line, often within two to three years, the person will, having had a pure upper motor neuron syndrome, will start to develop uh, lower motor neuron signs. So the, what we wanted to try and do was find a balance between saying, well, the old criteria said, well, if you wait long enough, four or five years, we can be absolutely sure it's PLS and not ALS. And, and that means that that person is going to be denied the appropriate therapy uh, when those get developed for PLS because people are waiting still to see if they're going to emerge into ALS and, and also the psychological component and planning component uh, of not having a clear diagnosis. Now, the balance is that if you make the call too early and that person doesn't have PLS, uh, then we might be giving them the wrong treatment potentially. But we felt that in general, we should try and err on the side of trying to move towards at least saying, look, I think this looks like it's emerging into PLS uh, within a couple of years, making that call, uh, or at least it's suspected, rather than having to wait for four or five. And that was the sort of the, the basis that we started on as a working group. How could we try and put the safety measures in? Um, what are the features right at the start that make you pretty pretty sure this is turning into PLS um, um, rather than developing into ALS. And you, so many of us actually use neurophysiology to uh, aid us in our, in our diagnosis. And you specifically talk about um, the absence of active lower motor neuron degeneration. Can you explain a little bit more, uh, in more detail what you mean by this? Yeah, so that's the, the core investigation in many ways is to, to say right from the start, electromography we know has limited sensitivity, but it is still a, a, you know, the most active and, and ubiquitous tool that we have for looking at the lower motor neuron dysfunction. And certainly it can pick up changes before we see clinical signs. And so we wanted to, to say really, that's gonna be the arbiter of whether someone's got emerging lower motor neuron signs. And the neurophysiology experts in our group were able to be pretty uh, straightforward about signs that you would see on on the neurophysiology that everyone would agree yeah that's definitely lower motor neuron involvement there the more difficult issue comes in in how often one would need to keep repeating that and we don't necessarily feel that that's something that has to be continually repeated or annually but undoubtedly one of the challenges is that later on in pls some patients will develop some very very minor muscle wasting often in the hands which won't really be matched by signs of very active denervation but has in the past led people to be distracted and say perhaps oh okay maybe this is ALS after all so I think that was the single most difficult aspect of all of this was really trying to make the neurophysiology work for us really rather than it become a shackle where everyone has to keep having repeated testing which is uncomfortable not always as sensitive as we'd like and uh, I think we've got a reasonable balance there. And as you mentioned at the start this is a often difficult diagnosis to reach and can take many years and your paper outlines a number of the key differential diagnoses to consider um, with presentations similar to PLS. What are some of the key alternate diagnoses neurologists should consider and what investigations might help them? Yeah I, I think it's really important to stress that PLS is very much a clinical diagnosis and when people who see a lot of motor neuron diseases when they've started to see tens of cases of, as many of us have 
uh, you, you start to get a feel for it. It's often a younger person, and we do have young people who develop ALS, but generally uh, the, the age of onset of PLS is going to be around about 50, uh, whereas the average age of onset for ALS is going to be over 60. So we're already getting a clue on a, on a younger patient, and then the insidious onset of, of gait difficulties typically, and then the finding of generalised spasticity. And that would be, I think, a very, very strong point already that this is very likely to be a case of PLS. The immediate issue is in separating out those who would be labelled as uh, hereditary spastic uh, paraplegia. Now, that's, again, quite a clinical entity. It does have some genetic components, but many of those cases where one will have typically an isolated lower limb involvement many of those cases will not have a genetic cause and we can't really rely on using genetic screening to be absolutely certain uh, that we're not dealing with that clinical entity. But the more generalised involvement of the limbs in terms of spasticity and certainly the development of typical corticobulbar dysarthria would start to very strongly support PLS. More rarely there are unusual uh, metabolic syndromes such as adrenomyeloneuropathy typically we would see changes on imaging there and MRI is one of the few times really when that is absolutely mandatory in a case of potential PLS because dealing with an upper motor neuron syndrome we obviously want to make sure one has excluded a, a structural cause uh, or anything unusually uh, vascular that one might see on scanning of the brain and spine and that will typically indicate white matter changes that one might then get a clue that you're dealing with more of a metabolic uh, leukodystrophy. It's not always the case that those cases will have brain changes but that's typical um, and we would often move to also check them for very long chain fatty acids, occasionally go straight for the genetic change ABCD1 uh, mutations. It is a very rare condition adrenomyeloneuropathy. Uh, at present that doesn't have a reversible therapy um, and so sometimes you know time is, is the, the arbiter there really. I think in terms of treatable and reversible conditions, typically the standard investigations of, of MRI will, will rule out all of those. And the other things on our list are really extremely unusual. Most of the time, this is a, is a PLS is very much a clinical diagnosis. And well, of course, we emphasise the fact that it is a clinical diagnosis. There are also a number of emerging uh, techniques and investigations which may in the future um, be added to diagnostic criteria. Can you tell our listeners about some of these uh, emerging uh, investigations? Yeah, so transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, has really found a very prominent place in the diagnostic role in the more common ALS and this phenomenon of cortical hyperexcitability, uh, very much pioneered by uh, colleagues at uh, University of Sydney, that, that has really started to emerge as a very useful way to separate ALS from uh, perhaps other um, conditions that affect the motor system. It's a little more difficult to know where that fits in with PLS because there are changes in the small studies that have been done, there are some similar changes in PLS patients, although in general, they tend to be a little harder to excite uh, in terms of their cortical excitability. And they do have some differences in things like their um, uh, central motor conduction time, which is a sort of marker of upper motor neuron involvement. Uh, so I think that there's more work to do there. And, and more broadly in neurophysiology, techniques such as 
magnetoencephalography is able to start to look at uh, something called coherence between both the cortex uh, and the muscle. And actually, uh, more recently, people have started to look at intermuscular coherence, so in between different muscles. And so these more network-based uh, neurophysiological tools may have a, a role in, again, defining the syndrome as being very much in the central circuits rather than the peripheral circuits. So I think there's more work to do there. Serum and, uh, and spinal fluid neurofilament, particularly neurofilament light chain, are a very much a front runner at the moment in ALS biomarkers. Roughly speaking, the levels of these markers reflect the speed of someone's disease. And so we would generally expect to have very low levels in PLS. The key question, and it really goes back to the other tests as well, is your comparator group. And so I think what, what we need is a very dedicated study taking all upper motor neuron syndromes, the motor syndrome, so upper motor neuron predominant ALS versus PLS, taking all those cases and prospectively following them with these sort of uh, tools, the neurophysiology tools, the neurofilament, and also to some extent with some of the new advanced automated volumetric MRI and to follow these patients and see which of these tools uh, is best able to predict the outcome further down the line. So lots of work going on in this area to further research uh, PLS. I want to thank Professor Turner for this excellent synopsis on the new diagnostic criteria for PLS and remind you all that the full paper is available for download now for free at the JNNP website. Thank you and goodbye.